What is up my ghouls? Welcome back to Olympia Oddities. In honor of Halloween this year, I've put together an episode about a serial killer that I personally find absolutely terrifying. But for some reason, he doesn't seem to be as widely known as other serial killers from the area, like Bundy or Ridgeway. This episode does come with a heavy content warning for rape and sexual assault, including incidents that involve children. So if you're sensitive to that kind of content, feel free to skip this one, and I'll see you again next time. Today, I'm going to be telling you the story of Randy Woodfield and how his failed football career set off a spree of vicious murders, assaults, and robberies up and down I-5. Randall Woodfield was born on December 26, 1950, to a well-known, highly respected family in the Newport, Oregon area. His mother was a stay-at-home mom, and his dad was an executive at the Pacific Northwest Bell Telephone Company. They had two daughters, and Randy was their third kid. Randy was raised in Otter Rock, Oregon, which is a small town by the sea in central Oregon, located about eight miles away from Newport. Usually when reading about a serial killer's childhood, there's usually something that stands out as a red flag, but by all accounts that I've read, Randy had a perfectly normal childhood. There's no mention of beatings, head injuries, no extremely strict religious upbringing, just by what seems by all accounts a perfectly normal, average childhood. However, by junior high, Randy began exposing himself in public, kicking off what would become a lifelong habit of being unable to keep his nasty dick inside of his pants. Once in high school, Randy was arrested for indecent exposure after he exposed himself to a group of teenage girls on the Yaquina Bay Bridge. Infuriatingly, Randy was on the football team and happened to be okay at playing a stupid ball game, so the coaches decided to cover the whole thing up for him and move on like nothing ever happened and let him continue playing on the team 100% free from the consequences of his own actions. His parents, on the other hand, at least made him attend therapy. After he graduated, his criminal record was expunged and he enrolled at Treasure Valley Community College in Ontario, Oregon. In 1970, he transferred to Portland State University to get a degree in physical education. He was also arrested in 1970 for vandalizing the apartment of one of his ex-girlfriends. In Portland, he once again played football, this time as a wide receiver for the Portland State Vikings, and was also extremely active in the college's Christian club, the Campus Crusade for Christ. He also played basketball and ran track and lived in an apartment located on the South Park blocks. His football coach, Gary Hamblett, said of Woodfield, when he was with me, he was the nicest, most gentlemanly kid I ever knew. He was quiet and polite, hardworking and real coachable. He sucked in everything I tried to coach him. Others around him at this time described him as a bit of a loner, soft-spoken, and nearly every one of them had something positive to say about his athletic abilities. When the Portland Tribune interviewed a former teammate of his that chose to remain anonymous, the teammate said, quote, Randy was a little strange. I don't know how to explain it. After all this came out, you look back and maybe he was stranger than we thought he was at the time. He had an obsession with his hair. It was curly and he'd go out of his way to straighten his hair. He was overboard. He was real concerned about how he looked. You just had a bad feeling about the guy. You always felt that there was something underneath his mask. Another former teammate who was interviewed explained that they were part of a Bible study group together before Woodfield began acting strangely, saying, quote, He was part of a small Bible study group with me. I want to say that lasted about a year and a half. We had a basketball team called the God Squad. He played for that. He came across as being very spiritual. He was relatively faithful with his attendance. 
but towards the end, he became very irregular. He started doing weird things. A few of us were going to go on a weekend retreat. He didn't show up. He had some excuse. A few days later, after the retreat, I saw a friend from Newport who said he saw Randy real early in the morning the day of the retreat in a shady area of downtown Portland. That was strange. He said he was going to be one place, but he was really somewhere else. He, What he said didn't jive with what the guy said. As it turns out, despite his squeaky clean appearance by day, by night, Randy was going to strip clubs, inviting girls over to his apartment that he now lived in alone, and just generally living a double life. Dropping out of college just three semesters shy of graduating, he was drafted by the Green Bay Packers as a wide receiver. He tried to establish himself as a member of the team, but after a dozen flashing incidents occurred in just a year of him being in Wisconsin, the Packers decided to cut him from the team completely. Randy remained in Wisconsin for a while longer, playing the 1974 season with the semi-pro team, the Manitowoc Chiefs. He also worked for Oshkosh Truck during this time. In late 1974, he moved back to Portland. Soon after his arrival back in town, a series of robberies and sexual assaults began taking place over po across Portland. Unknown to everyone at the time, Randy Woodfield was the one committing these crimes. Using a knife, he would rob women of their purses and sexually assault them. The police decided to try to attempt to catch the perpetrator of these crimes by having some uh, officers who were women act as decoys. On March 3, 1975, they were able to arrest him after finding marked money that had been stolen from one of the decoy officers on him. During his interrogation, he confessed to the crimes, saying that he had poor sexual impulse control, which he blamed steroids for causing. In April of 1975, he pled guilty to charges that somehow got dropped to just second-degree robbery and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. After serving four years, he was freed on parole in July of 1979. During his time in prison, he had written letters to a former classmate that he'd known since second grade, Sherry Ayers. Sherry had attended the University of Oregon and was working as an x-ray technician. On October 9th of the following year, Sherry Ayers was found murdered in her downtown Portland apartment by her fiancé. She had been bludgeoned to death and repeatedly stabbed in the neck. Fortunately, because of the letters they had sent to each other during random Randy's time in prison, her family heavily suspected that he had something to do with it and had proof, so they gave his name to the police. He was taken in for questioning, and his answers were described as evasive and deceptive. He also refused to take a polygraph test. Because his blood type did not match the semen found at the crime scene, no charges were filed. Just one month later, on the morning of Thanksgiving Day, Woodfield would commit his second and third horrendous murder. He had gone to the home of one of his friend's ex-girlfriends, a woman named Darcy Renee Fix, planning on assaulting her. But when he arrived on the morning of the 27th, a man named Douglas Keith Altig was also present in the home. He bound them both and shot them execution style before fleeing the scene with Darcy's gun, a 32 caliber revolver that police later discovered missing from the scene. Since police knew that Darcy Fix had been an acquaintance of Randy's, Randy was once again brought in for questioning. Unable to find any solid evidence that pinned him to the crime scene, he walked free once again. After these extremely brutal murders, Woodfield began a string of robberies and assaults that took place all over the Pacific Northwest. On December 9, 1980, he held up a gas station in Vancouver, Washington at gunpoint, wearing a fake beard as a disguise. Four nights later, he robbed an ice cream shop in Eugene, Oregon. On the 14th, he robbed a restaurant in Albany. 
In a dark throwback to his previous career before his crime spree, he wore a strip of athletic tape over his nose, like the nasal strips that football players use, as one of his disguises. On December 21st, he committed another robbery, once again wearing a fake beard as a disguise. This robbery happened at a Seattle restaurant, and Woodfield trapped a waitress who was working there in the bathroom and sexually assaulted her at gunpoint. In January of 1981, police working the case had officially given him the moniker of the I-5 Bandit, due to the crimes occurring along the I-5 corridor, which Woodfield traveled up and down in his 1974 Champagne Edition Gold VW Beetle. Once again, Pacific Northwest killers and frickin' bugs. I'm just saying, don't trust a man in a bug. If you live in Washington or Oregon or Idaho or just anywhere, really, don't trust a man in a bug. Just days after, on January 8th, Woodfield robbed the same gas station in Vancouver that he had previously robbed in December. And we've seen this before in my um, Scott Skurlock episode, where he would go back to a bank that he previously robbed and rob the place again. And I think that's so... It's such, like, a weird detail, and it's so interesting, kind of, like, I wonder what the psychology behind that is to be, like, oh, I robbed them once, I'm gonna go back and rob them again. I don't know if it's, like, they know that they got away with it the first time, or they know, like, the layout of the location. I'm gonna have to do, like, my own little deep dive into that. Uh, During this robbery, he forced the gas station attendant working to expose her breasts as he stole money out of the cash register. Just three days later, he robbed a market in Eugene, Oregon, and the next day, the 12th, he shot and wounded a grocery clerk at a store in Sutherland, Oregon. On the 14th, Randy Woodfield broke into a home where two young sisters lived. The girls were just eight and 10 years old. He forced the girls to undress and sexually assaulted them. After this, he went to Salem where he broke into a building. He sexually assaulted two women who were inside, Sherry Hull and Beth Wilmont. He killed Sherry and wounded Beth before leaving, leaving her for dead. He then traveled to Southern Oregon, where he committed more robberies in Eugene, Medford, and Grants Pass. During the Grants Pass robbery, he assaulted two women, a clerk working the store, and a customer. On February 3rd, the bodies of Donna Eckhart and her daughter had been found together in a bed at their home in Mountain Gate, California. Donna was 37, and her daughter was just 14. They had both been shot in the head, and forensic testing later revealed that the girl had been sodomized during the attack. On the same day, Woodfield had also held up a store in Redding and kidnapped, raped, and sodomized the female store employee. The next day, an identical crime was reported, this time at a motel in Ashland, Oregon. Five days later, Woodfield would enter a fabric store in Corvallis, groping the employee working there and a customer, before leaving. On February 12th, he headed north on I-5, committing a string of robberies that day that started in Vancouver, then Olympia, and the Ferdinand third and final robbery of the day happened in Bellevue, Washington. Three sexual assaults occurred during the Olympia and Bellevue robberies. He bizarrely took time away from his rapidly escalating spree of violence to plan a Valentine's Day party for his friends upon his arrival back in the Portland area. What a romantic. He decided on the downtown Portland Marriott Hotel as the location for his party and invited friends and acquaintances from college. Shockingly, Not one person wanted to spend the holiday of love with creepy-ass Randy, so after no one showed up, he drove to the home of Julie Reitz, a 18-year-old bouncer that he had met at the Fawcett, the bar that she worked at. He arrived at her home around 2 a.m., and police later investigating the scene determined that they had a glass of wine together. 
Julie also started to make coffee for them, leaving a package of instant coffee on the counter and a kettle of water that had been completely boiled down. Around 4 a.m., Woodfield had raped Julie before shooting her in the head, killing her. On February 18th and the 21st, he committed two more robberies, this time in Eugene, and assaulted another woman in Corvallis on the 25th. Thankfully, just a few days later, the police investigating the case would finally focus in on Woodfield as a suspect. Marion County detectives had been able to put together a call log that showed that Woodfield had made calls via calling cards at payphones around the crime scenes and around the time that the crimes had occurred. On March 5th, he was brought into the Salem Police Department for an interrogation after Lisa Garcia, a witness to one of the robberies, was able to pick him out of a photo lineup. His Springfield, Oregon apartment was searched two days later, and police discovered a spent 32 shell casing inside of a racquetball bag and a roll of tape that matched tape found on one of the victims. On March 7th, after several more robbery victims were able to positively identify him as being their assailant, Woodfield was finally taken into custody. Indictments for murder, rape, sodomy, attempted kidnapping, armed robbery, and illegal possession of firearms were initiated from various jurisdictions in Washington and Oregon on March 16th. In the summer of 1981, Randy Woodfield's first trial began. This trial was for the murder of Sherry Hull, as well as sodomy charges and the attempted murder of Beth Wilmont. Beth testified against Randy during the trial and ended up being a uh, key in his conviction. Chris Van Dyke, the son of actor Dick Van Dyke, was the Marion County, Oregon District Attorney at the time and prosecuted the case. Of Woodfield, he would say that he was the coldest, most detached defendant I've ever seen. After three and a half hours of deliberation, Woodfield was convicted on all counts on June 26th. He was sentenced to life in prison, plus an additional 90 years of time. In October, his second trial began. This trial was for sodomy and weapons charges from the incident where he attacked the female employee in the restaurant bathroom and was set to take place in Benton County. His counsel attempted to have the trial moved, insisting that since the case was widely publicized, Woodfield or couldn't possibly get a fair trial there. The judge turned down this request, along with another that requested that one of the per persecution's witnesses be hypnotized to see if they had been influenced by media coverage of the case. After this trial, Woodfield was once again convicted, and 35 more years were added to his previously existing sentencing terms. Unfortunately, even though there are many things that link him to other crimes, Woodfield would never be prosecuted for the majority of the crimes it's believed he's committed. The state of Oregon was also unable to afford uh, the many trials required and seemed to be satisfied with his life in prison plus 125 years prison sentence that he had received. Randy Woodfield is currently incarcerated at the Oregon State Penitentiary and has never confessed to any of the crimes he committed, whether accused or convicted of them. Jim Lawrence, a detective for Portland's Cold Case Unit, noted Woodfield's lack of remorse or responsibility in his crimes, saying that, quote, If you're talking about somebody moving towards some form of rehabilitation, they had to at some point acknowledge they are responsible for their own behaviors. That is not Randy Woodfield. Lawrence also said that in his inter his early interrogations, Randy made wildly inappropriate and egotistical remarks, saying that when he was interviewed, he'd tell detectives that he'd never rape a girl. He said he didn't have to. They wanted him. During his time in prison, he's been injured by another inmate in a prison dispute, 
and attempted to sue Anne Rule to the tune of $12 million after she published her book on him, The I-5 Killer. The book was published in 1984, but Randy waited until April of 1987 to file his lawsuit, and the federal court in Oregon threw out the charges in January of 1988, citing that the statute of limitations on the lawsuit had expired. He's also been married three times and divorced twice, all while in prison. By 1990, more victims had been discovered, and authorities speculate that he could have more than 44 victims to his name. In 2001 and 2006, DNA was able to link Woodfield to two more murders that occurred in Oregon in 1980 and 1981. He's also considered the main suspect in at least 60 unsolved rapes. Some letters of his from prison were published in a collection called The Serial Killer Letters, where he really lets his personality of a soggy Big Mac left out in the rain shine. For example, here's one of his letters that he wrote to a journalist, Jennifer Furio. You only care to know why murderers strike out in anger or rage? How should I know? What a question, Jenny. Care to write more personally? Share a photo? Talk once by phone? Your choice. Ciao, Randall Woodfield. Fuck this guy. I hate this guy so much. Uh, Woodfield is 69 years old and still resides in the Oregon State Penitentiary, where he's stuck for the rest of his shitty, scummy life. Thank you for listening to another episode of Olympia Oddities. If you want to support the podcast, leave me a positive review, tell a friend, or follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Olympia Oddities Podcast. Until next time, friends, and remember, never trust a VW bug in the Pacific Northwest.